Ready to connect with the investment community here in Cleveland? Want to learn about the people, events, projects, and firms that are making a difference? Want all that but feel like you don't have the time? This is the show for you. Welcome to Guardians of Finance. Brought to you by the CFA Society of Cleveland and hosted by Matt McLaughlin, Portfolio Specialist at Diamond Hill Capital Management, Guardians of Finance will provide you with a chance to foster deeper connections and know what is getting the attention of Cleveland's investment community. Subscribe to the podcast on your favorite podcast platform and head to guardiansoffinance.com where you can connect or reconnect with the CFA Society of Cleveland and attend an educational or social event and find volunteer opportunities. And now, here's your host, Matt McLaughlin. Welcome to the Guardians of Finance podcast. I am your host, Matt McLaughlin. In this episode, we talk with Dave Fulton, President and CEO of Clearstead. Dave has a long and distinguished career in Northeast Ohio. We talk about his career progressions and his work with both big and small firms around Cleveland. We also go into detail about Clearstead's past, present, and future and dive into Dave's personal life passions where he stays active on multiple fronts. Thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoy this episode with Dave Fulton. Dave, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Matt, and thanks for thinking of us. Thanks for including us. Absolutely. Now, Dave, just for people who may not be familiar with you, do you want to just kind of give a brief overview of who you are, your role right now? And we always like to get into where you're from or where your Cleveland roots began. Well, thanks. I'm currently the chairman and chief executive officer of Clearstead Advisors. And we'll talk a little bit more about that. But my career in wealth management, investment management, financial advisory began after I returned to Cleveland with Steinrow and Farnham, which was an old line Chicago firm. And from there, another Steinrow partner and I split off and started our own firm, built it up, sold it to Mellon. Then from there, I went to head Sterling, which is the high-end business at National City. And then when National City was purchased by PNC, I went out and invested in Heartland and Company which is morphed into Clearstead. So that's a little bit of my background. I grew up in Cleveland. I went to university school in Amherst, and I went to Dartmouth for graduate school and have a CFA. So that's how I arrived where I am. So when did you first get your charter? Were you an early adopter of the designation? I'm early compared to where they are now. I'll tell you that. <laughs> my charter is about 10,000. So I received my charter, I think, in 85 or 86, somewhere in there. So it was early on. And at Stein Row, they emphasized the CFA. And one of the interesting things was that nobody in the history of the firm had ever failed any part of the CFA. So <laughs> the pressure was on. So I was scared to death, but I passed. Now, was that because, I'm sure it was multiple reasons, but because there are a bunch of really smart, hardworking people there, or was it just they gave you a lot of flexibility to study for? Like, Why had they never had anyone that had failed? Because I think it's the first thing. They were just hard-driving people, and that was just the way it was. I'm not sure if that's still the way it is there, but it certainly was at that point. Now, we talked to quite a few people, and we don't tend to find a ton of charter holders that are in 
I would say kind of more strategic CEO kind of roles. It feels like it's more the chartholders are in the kind of the CIO role or more investment focus. Talk to us a little bit about how you kind of went from an investment person or maybe more of an investment person earlier in your career to kind of more strategic and that kind of realm later in your career. How did that work? Early on, I was a portfolio manager. So we were building portfolios of stocks and bonds and working off research. I began to morph toward asset allocation. And I think at that point, I realized the leverage of building and running firms as opposed to being a portfolio manager. So that's where I started to head. So early on, I was either starting firms or heading businesses of investment management firms. Maybe we'll rewind a little bit and kind of go back to your earlier career. You said you graduated from Amherst College and went to Dartmouth for your MBA. Now, were you living in and around Cleveland at the time or were you somewhere else? And you mentioned the Chicago firm, maybe you're on the East Coast. Where were you physically located around that time of your career and how did that progression go? When I got out of college, I was an English major. So it was hard to be employed usefully anywhere. Not that what I did was not useful, but I went to work for the Lincoln Electric Company and started in the plant. And I started as a worker and I spent a year as a piece worker in the plant and then went into the sales program at Lincoln. And ultimately, a year later, ended up as the assistant to a gentleman who became the chief executive of Lincoln. And that family, by the way, is a client of ours now, which is sort of a funny thing. But at that point, I decided to go back to business school. So I applied to a bunch of schools and I got into Tuck and that's where I went. And was the idea when you got out of Tuck to make your way more into financial services or what was the career path you thought at that time? I really didn't know what investment management was. So I went to work for a bank and then one day got a call from Stein Rowe and they said, here's what we do. We're a major money manager in Chicago. Are you interested? And I said, yes. So I talked to them and signed up. That's really how it happened. So I didn't have much of an intent to go into investment management, but I loved it. Was the idea to always make your way back to Cleveland or did that just come by happenstance? No, I think it was. I married a young lady from Cleveland. So we had Cleveland roots. Stein Rowe had a Cleveland office. So it was a good fit with my background. So it all came together and we moved back to Cleveland. Now, you've worked for some smaller firms and some bigger firms. Mellon Wealth, obviously very well-known, National City, great name in Cleveland. Kind of compare and contrast working for smaller independent firms and working for a bank or larger organization and maybe some pluses and minuses to each. At every step in your career, you learn a lot. And I felt that my career was always learning and then applying what I had learned to my new management positions. So Stein Rowe was a tremendous firm, national in scope, one of the largest money managers in the country. I learned a lot about portfolio construction and working directly with clients. We started our own firm on the principles of Stein Rowe and built that firm up. That was exciting because it was highly entrepreneurial and we built that firm up to maybe 20-some employees and 
about 800 million of assets under management. But we were still managing individual stocks and bonds. At National City, it was my first foray into true wealth management. And I learned a lot working at Sterling, just a tremendous amount. I would say the same thing at Mellon. Mellon had, for a large institution, they did a very good job of working with clients, of alternative investments, of asset allocation. So at every step, I was picking something up. And that's really been how my career has unfolded. Just looking at your background, you joined, well, it had been Hartland at the time, but Clear said now, in 2009, there had to be some doubt in your mind or some questioning at the time, like, is this the right move? Like, Talk to us about that time and your decision to go away from National City and get involved at Heartland. Yeah. Every time you start up a firm, you feel a little crazy, of course. When we started Weber, Fulton, and Fellman, it was a real leap of faith. You're stepping out and with no clients and just what you know to build on. So there were some many sleepless nights, but over time, you begin to build a clientele and everyone that comes in is just a celebration. Geez, these people believe in us and we're going to be able to build on this. This is great. So the advantage of joining Heartland is that it was a small but really well-regarded institutional advisory firm. So endowments and foundations, retirement funds, hospitals. So we had something to build on. So what we did is we started to take over the institutional business, but then build on top of it a private wealth business. So the Heartland move was a leap of faith, of course, but it was not as scary as when we started our own firm after Stein Rome. How do you get comfortable with that uncertainty of starting your own firm or starting something new? It seems like you've done that again and again over your career, it seems like. And I don't want to say you're numb to it now, but maybe it doesn't intimidate you as much now as it did when you were starting. How do you get comfortable with that? You have to have some confidence, I think, belief in yourself and in what you can provide. There's always unknown, but you adapt to the unknown. You adapt to the uncertainty as things come at you. And you have to get down and really dig in and begin to build. It's one by one, client by client. At Heartland, they had some outstanding people. So it was a matter of getting into the trenches with them, understanding what was going on, and then saying, okay, together, we're going to get out of the trench and we're going to go. <laughs> and that was the early days of Heartland. And we started this private client business. Carl Tippett came over, made an investment. We did some lift outs, some recruiting of some really talented people. And it just began to build. What did you see, or maybe some other early people see in that private wealth business at Heartland that maybe others weren't? Because that's grown to be a significant part of your guys' organization now, and maybe one you're focusing on. What was there? What were the aspects of the business that were there that maybe others weren't maybe underestimating at the time? The biggest thing was that you could take the institutional investment process and apply it to private clients. So the institutional business is highly structured. Their governance means a lot, asset allocation, a specific attribution analysis, performance analysis, all of that is part of the institutional business. So we applied that to private families. So that started to take off because treating families like an institution, they really liked. 
And then we added tax, financial planning, family office services, and we bought two trust companies. We built on that institutional platform a fully integrated suite of services for families. And at what point in the build out of that private wealth, which is kind of still going on, would you say was like a, hey, this is going to make it. This is a really good path run. Was there one or two kind of seminal moments that stick out in your mind for the success of that part of the business? I think as we started to recruit really top people, we knew we were onto something when really leading practitioners in Cleveland joined our firm. So that was one affirmation of what we were doing. And it's just like when we were starting up Weber Fulton years before, every new private client was celebrated. It was just a success every time another family hired us. So it really built on itself. Do those celebrations ever get old? Do you still have them today? No, we we always love them. <laughs> no, but as people join our firm now, they come over with no clients. So they have to keep building. And so we really celebrate those. It's still great. And where does that drive to succeed for you and that desire to win? Where does that come from? Do you have a background in sports or is it just something you've always had? Or like, where does that come from? Because I think it's different for a lot of different people. So I'd love to hear from you. Where does that come from? Yeah, I'm not sure. I'm not sure my mom knows where it comes from. But (laughs) yeah, I've just always been driven to build firms and I enjoy it. And I'm not sure where it comes from. Can you talk to us a little about the progression of Heartland to Clearstead? Some people know about that progression, just given your firm's prominence here in Cleveland. But maybe for someone who doesn't know, tell us about the progression from maybe around when you joined 2009 until now and some major moments along the way that builds you into the firm that you are right now. The main thing that we've done around here is we've really stressed culture. So objectivity, collaboration, and intellectual freedom. So objectivity, we don't make or sell products extremely important to families. Collaboration. Of our 180 employees, about 50 are shareholders of the firm. So that's been important to our growth. There's nothing like owning, and it's not a gift. People have to invest in the firm. So it's not a gift, but it sure aligns interests quickly. And then intellectual freedom, the idea that you have the ability to participate in the process, whatever process it is, but then come out of that process arm's length and apply the best thinking of the firm to client situations. So I think those things really helped build the firm. So for a long time, we just did it organically. We have organic growth. We would do lift outs. We do small acquisitions along the way. And that's how we built. In 2017, we had Rosemont Investment Partners come in and buy out the founders of the firm. Rosemont took a 32% stake or something in our firm. And that was fantastic because what it did is it opened up the opportunity for younger people to buy in. So we went from 11 to 18 shareholders immediately. We're at 50 now. So as we grew, there was more opportunity for people to buy in. In 2022, Rosemont was replaced by a firm called Flexpoint Ford, which is a Chicago-based private equity firm. 
And that, again, enabled us to extend equity to younger people. Today, as we grow and acquire, we have the right to invest side by side with FlexPoint on acquisitions so younger people can buy in at every turn. Anybody could buy it. I can buy it. Carl Tippett could buy it. So that's how we've done it. And so we've grown to 50 shareholders. We just had our partner meeting the other day. It was amazing how many people we have in the room now. That's a great background. As a leader of an organization that stresses intellectual freedom, I kind of want to dig into that a little bit. How do you think about that from a leadership perspective of what you need to do to do that? Because especially charter holders and investment people, they want that intellectual freedom. They desire that intellectual freedom. But I'm sure there's a fine line between people going off the rails in that intellectual freedom. So how do you think from a leadership perspective, what are the couple of things that are really important in implementing that kind of culture at an organization? You have to have trust in one another. And you also have to have the willingness to participate in a process and recognize the interchange of ideas results in better outcomes. You're all smart people, but... When you work with other people and different opinions and thoughts and ideas, the outcome is better. So you have to be accepting of that. So make your case, become a part of the process, whatever process it is here that you're involved with, and then use the outcome of that process in serving clients. That's really how it works. We try to be as consistent as possible. It doesn't mean that everybody's an automaton or a robot or doing everything according to the firm. It's more organic. It's bottom up. And then once we have the best approach, then apply that to client situations. No, that's great. You've been involved with two different private equity firms, or Clearstat has. Sounds like a couple different major transactions there and maybe more little transactions going forward with the co-invest. For maybe a firm or a leader that's out there that hasn't worked with private equity before, what would you provide or what would you say to that business owner or that leader that's thinking about private equities calling them or getting involved? Kind of what are some learnings that you've had and some takeaways from working with private equity over the last six, seven years? We've had a successful experience with private equity. When you go into working with a private equity firm, you've got to have some idea about why you're doing it. We did it for management succession. We did it so that our younger people could come up and own more equity. And also, it's a way for the older guys to begin to phase out. So that's quite important. I think also that it gives you capital to invest in your company. So you get capital to invest in technology, in people, processes. That's quite important. And then... It also gives you capital to grow. So when you have an opportunity, there's capital there for you to invest or buy. The issue, of course, is private equity's exit. It's a little bit like a shot clock. Every few years, they're going to want to get out. Now, Rosemont was five years. It was a great firm, right firm at the right time. We outgrew Rosemont's ability to fund us. So that was the time. So we got another private equity firm, FlexPoint Ford. I believe that there's real scarcity value to firms like ours, not just ours, but like ours, and that private equity is going to want to stay in for a long period of time. Now, they may sell 
part of their interest to another private equity firm. But I think we're going to end up having them as partners for a long time. They've been exactly the right firm. Great group of people helped us out a lot. Now, if you're going to fast forward five years, what will Clearstead look like in five years to the Northeast Ohio investment community? Today, we're 180 people, 50 shareholders. We're advising about 200 institutions, 700 families, about 30 billion of assets under advisement, 8 billion for private clients, 22 billion for institutions. I think that our, well, I know that our vision is to become a leading nationally recognized financial advisory firm. So to get there, we got to continue to enhance client service. We've got to make sure we have sufficient infrastructure as we grow, and we've got to continue our exceptional growth. Growth is not just because of growth. It's because every time you add on, you get great people, processes, you learn things that make you better and better and better. So that's what we're about. So five years, I think we will have achieved our goal of being a leading nationally recognized firm. I mean, I think we're known in the industry now. People know a little bit about us outside of Cleveland, but we'd like to continue to build on that. For someone who's maybe early in their career and hears that vision and knows the clear said name, and they're like, wow, that maybe seems like a firm I want to get involved with. What kind of people do well at Clearstead? And what kind of people do you guys look for? We look for people who want to be part of a team and work their way into ownership. Those people do really well here. And we've had fantastic results recruiting at Ohio universities. So Ohio State, OU, John Carroll, Akron, fabulous results. So people who want to dig in, become part of the team and build. We emphasize the CFA, CFP, and CPA designations. Really important to what we're about. I can speak from personal experience. There's a ton of charter holders at our events that are Clearstead employees and they're fantastic to interact with and really involved in the society. So, so thank you for having the firm support the society. Maybe turning personally or some more topics away from professional life, what do you do in your personal life to the extent that you're willing to share? Is there family there or hobbies? Or We'd love to hear more about Dave as a person more than the professional. Well, I've been married to a lovely woman for 43 years, three sons, uh, one in New York, two in Cleveland, four grandchildren. So that's really gratifying. And we certainly spent a lot of time chasing the children and grandchildren around. So we love that. Keeps you young, right? Oh, boy. It's great. <laughs> we do a lot of travel. We have a house in Vermont. We go up there. And so we travel. We take a couple of big trips every year. And then sports. I play racket sports, you know, tennis, squash, and ski. I love golf. I'm not very good. <laughs> and then civically, I think that, you know, going back to young people in Cleveland, I think it's important to get involved civically in Cleveland. It just broadens you as an individual and broadens your network. And you don't do it to build business, but invariably it works into that. So my whole career, I've been quite involved with civic endeavors. You know, I've been very involved with a university school, Lakeview Cemetery, our church, the foundation at Shaker Lakes. I'm active in BVU. 
So those are all things that over time have been important. Sounds like you have quite a few activities to stay active, which is great. Maybe the favorite part of the show is kind of, we call it a rapid fire, kind of lightning round questions, a little more lighthearted. So if it's okay with you, we can move into that and kind of go through those. Great. All right. Do you have a nickname? Senator. Senator. Really? Interesting. I have to dig into that. Where did that come from? That's from college. Who knows? (laughs) (laughs) We kind of talked a little about your hobbies, but what's your favorite? hobby. If you had to rank one at the top, what is it? I collect books and I read a lot. So I read and write and collect books. Okay. What is your favorite non-investment book and what's your favorite investment book? My favorite investment book is Modern Portfolio Theory by David Swetland. I thought that was just such a spectacular book. Changed my thinking in many ways. Jeez, my favorite. I read so many books, but I think Leaves of Grass by Walt Whitman. I think that's endlessly fascinating. I pick that up and read it over and over and over, but there's so many. Maybe your nickname gave this one away, but what profession would you be in if you didn't follow the financial career path? Yeah. Well, who knows? I thought about law school, but I wasn't quite smart enough to make it there. So I ended up following this path, more entrepreneurial. Did you ever give a thought to politics given that nickname in college? I did. I loved them. I still do. I follow the issues, but I never turned that corner to get into politics. Turning to travel, because it sounds like you guys travel a little bit. What's your favorite travel destination and what's on the top of the Fulton family bucket list? The places you know are great. We love going to Vermont and Canada, but The most interesting trip in the last year is we went to Israel, which was really fascinating. And our next big trip is we're going to Japan in April. Now, fun. What's the itinerary there? Is it Tokyo or are you guys going to go around the country a little bit more? It's Tokyo and then down to Osaka and Kyoto and that part of Japan. And then we head over to South Korea and then back and then fly home from Osaka. That sounds fun. Any hidden talents? <laughs> Most of the time, we don't get any good ones because I think, generally speaking, no offense to all of us, but we're boring financial people, but we've got a couple of good ones. So any hidden talents on, on your end? I did take tap dancing lessons, but I'm really terrible. So <laughs> <laughs> That is unique. I can't say that we've had anyone say that. So that's a good one. What is your favorite lunch destination in Cleveland? Well, this is boring, but it's the Union Club. <laughs> Because our our office is a block away, so it's like our firm cafeteria. (laughs) Well, we're holding all of our lunch events now there, so I expect to see you at a couple there for lunch. What's your favorite hidden gem? It could be food or otherwise that some people don't know about in Cleveland that you're like, oh gosh, more people need to know about this. Well, I'd say Wade Chapel at Lakeview Cemetery is a Cleveland gem. The Tiffany walls and windows and the history of it, it's spectacular. So if you haven't visited Wade Chapel, it's really worth doing. I would also add the Soldiers and Sailors Monument in Public Square. If you haven't spent time just looking around and soaking that in, that's fascinating. What's your favorite metro park? I would say Euclid Creek. We love walking along there. It's accessible, really nice. Sounds like you read a lot, so I don't know if you do this, but are you watching any shows right now? What's on the TV at the Fulton household? Well, I just finished the Netflix series on World War II, and it's a colorized series. I don't know if you've seen it, but it's excellent. 
No. Is that new? I've seen kind of the Band of Brothers and that series, but this sounds like a newer feature. This one's actually factual. It's actual real footage that has been colorized. And what's interesting is that they found some of the people years later who were in these films and they talk about the moment and it's pretty well done. Sounds interesting. I'm kind of a history buff, so I might check that one out. Yeah. Yeah. Are you an active sports fan or Cleveland sports fan? I would say that I do. Of course, I follow the Browns, but not that closely. I love it when they're winning, like all Fairweather Cleveland fans. We watch a lot of tennis, so I enjoy following that. Sure. Okay. What's your favorite Browns moment? And then what's your favorite tennis moment since you're a fan? The favorite Browns moment was in 1964. My father took my brother and I to the championship game against the Colts. And the post pattern, Frank Ryan to Gary Collins was one of the great moments of my life. So (laughs) that was an amazing game, 27 to nothing. That was a real highlight. Roger Federer, of course, is my all-time favorite tennis player. What an elegant, brilliant player he is. Now, turning the coin on the Browns, what's your most disappointing Browns moment? And I'm sure there's plenty to choose from, but maybe what sticks out in your mind is like, oh, I can't believe we did this. That infamous fumble was probably the low point. I forget what year that was, but the Browns had it all that year and that ended the season abruptly. Well, it's December when we're recording this and the Browns look like they're making the playoffs. So let's hope we have a good ending to this season whenever this podcast posts. I think we can all root for that. Yeah, thank you. Well, that is the end of the rapid fire questions. Dave, we really appreciate you coming on the podcast and sharing your story, sharing some things about ClearSet and what you're like on the personal side. So we really appreciate having you on. Well, thank you. And I really appreciate it, Matt. I enjoyed speaking with you. You've been listening to Guardians of Finance, brought to you by the CFA Society of Cleveland. Subscribe to the podcast on your favorite podcast platform and head on over to guardiansoffinance.com where you can connect or reconnect with the CFA Society of Cleveland, attend an educational or social event, and find volunteer opportunities. Thanks, and we'll see you next time on Guardians of Finance.